All right, peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of hot nonsense from YouTube. Lots of gems, lots of this Kung Fu Grandmaster can beat up that scrub, lots of your Kung Fu is really traditional, but does it have 720 whirlwind kicks? Let's get to it. And every day I practice martial arts. <laughs> Yo, Mikey, how you doing, man? I'm great, Seagong. How you doing? Good, good, good. Here's the second episode where you are, uh, are our new uh, co-host. Oh, yeah. No, right. I'm super excited. Hey, everyone, look. I got, um, I got the uniform. The KFG hey. podcast t-shirt available uh, at the uh, City Wing Chun Pro Shop online. The link for that awesome t-shirt is in the description below. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Obviously, I got mine because I got, you know, promoted. Promoted, yeah, that's right. So now we have no sound guy, all right, but we have... Uh, we have a better looking co-host, if I do say so myself. Well, thank you very much. You know, you're going to make me blush underneath this like like silver foxy beard that yeah, I currently this have. Paddington, <laughs> Paddington bear exterior you have. <laughs> well, I did bring a couple of marmalade sandwiches for both of us, you know what as I mean? As you should, as you should. Absolutely. I don't look like I'm from Peru. What? Well, that's where Paddington came from. He's like, he, he, he come from Peru and then like was- got Yeah, but once he's over there, then he technically becomes one of your peeps. Yeah, I mean, he's always been one of our peeps. You yes. Know what I mean, like yes. Harry Potter and, um, you know, was it Gary Glitter? Wow. You guys just have the best guys over there, right? Oh, amazing. You know what I mean? They're the best. Tony Blair, Jimmy Savile. Fantastic. <laughs> Fine examples of your fellow countrymen. <laughs> All right. So here we are. Uh, by the way, just want to uh, tell people that obviously if you want to support the Kung Fu Genius podcast, if you like what we do here, the best way to support us is on Patreon. Uh, Patreon supporters can support for as little as $5 a month. Higher levels of support, you get all sorts of cool extra goodies and things like that, including at the baller level, you could even get your own private KFG episode with me. And uh, But for uh, $5, uh, you will actually get these episodes early. These episodes generally come out on Monday, whether on audio or on YouTube. And if you're a Patreon supporter, you get them usually on the previous Friday, sometimes on Saturday, depending on what our workflow is. And uh, also, if you are a Patreon supporter, you also get the uh, Kung Fu Genius Instagram subscriber-only content, which is like I have a weekly tip on Wing Chun. And so you can subscribe, obviously, on Instagram for that. But if you're a Patreon supporter, you also get that included as well. So Patreon is definitely, definitely the place to be. 100% the place to be. Absolutely. So here we are. We are ready for another Ask Me Anything episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, what you got from me. All right. So... Number two, again, from Sifu Adrian Khan, for those who do not remember this. Sifu from Toronto, Wing Chun Sifu. For students learning Wing Chun, what do you consider in... By the way, you just pronounce that Wing Chun. That's a, the VT spelling is just an alternate spelling of Wing Chun, but in Cantonese, it's all Wing Chun. Whether you spell it W-I-N-G-C-H-U-N, W-I-N-G-T-S-U-N, V-I-N-G-T-S-U-N, it's all Wing Chun. Oh, that's good to know, because um, the thing is... As a European, I often wondered if that was actually a change because, you know, Germans love it. No, no, no. I mean, that, that is a very common misconception about the spelling, especially the TS spelling, because like in German, when you have a hard ch sound, uh, they will often use a TS to denote that kind of hard ch sound. Uh, so there's always been that kind of assumption that it's like kind of a German version of the spelling or whatever. But no, the um, the original T-S-U-N spelling, the V-I-N-G-T-S-U-N spelling that Sifu Adrian Khan here uses is actually the spelling that 
they originally came up with when they formed the Wing Chun Athletic Association, not the Ving Chun Athletic Association, or worse, the Ving Tsun Athletic Association, <laughs> as some people say. Um, and uh, they had to phoneticize Wing Chun, because you have to imagine that in Chinese, uh, Wing Chun is two Chinese characters. Uh, how you spell it is a non-starter because they do not use our alphabet. So, however, because Hong Kong was a British colony when they formed Chinese companies, and they had to register it with the government, then they also had to have some kind of phoneticized spelling of uh, all of those. Okay. That's why all those Chinese companies in Hong Kong also have like some phoneticization of how you say the name of the company, right? Um, and for whatever reason, um, whether it was a number of Yip Man senior students or Yip Man themselves or whatever, they settled on the V-I-N-G-T-S-U-N spelling for Wing Chun. Uh, there are there is some speculation that uh, the V-I-N-G thing, that that came from Grandmaster Yip Man's own idea. Grandmaster Yip Man did study some English um, when he went to uh, St. Stephen's College, but it's not entirely clear how good his English was. I heard some stories about his English being not that great, and that potentially this V-I-N-G spelling for Wing was Yip Man's idea because he simply just confused V with W. All right. right. Um, and then there's this other kind of um, what I kind of consider a very lame um, retroactive. Um, what do they call it? A retcon of yes. why it's spelled that way. All right? right. To use modern movie speak. And that's because they're like, well, you have to understand that Cantonese is a dialect of Chinese or a version of the Chinese language that has many tones. All right. So generally it's accepted that there's six tones in Chinese in Cantonese, I should say. And, uh, but some scholars say that they're nine, uh, to which a lot of my Cantonese speaking friends are like, go ahead and show me the nine tones. I, I speak Cantonese, <laughs> I don't know what nine tones you're talking about. So there were some people that said, well, you know, the real uh, pronunciation of Wing um, is uh, so nuanced. It's one of these like very special scholarly tones. So actually the V-I-N-G spelling is more accurate to which any Cantonese teacher will tell you there is no V sound in Cantonese phonetics. Wow. So it is a non-starter. It has nothing. The tone of a word or how it's pronounced in Chinese is independent of how you quote unquote spell it. Mm -hmm. Because for example, ma, M-A, which is just a sound in Chinese, depending on what tone you use can mean different things and they would be different Chinese characters. But you wouldn't like spell ma, if it's on the fifth tone, change the M to a, a Z and say, no, it's pronounced ma, but because of the tone, you spell it Z-A. That's a total non-starter. So there's some people who try to retcon what's essentially an erroneous spelling of V-I-N-G um, because of like some kind of bullshit ancient tones and stuff like that. That's a bunch of nonsense. Wing, the, the first character in our martial art is W-I-N-G in the sixth tone in Cantonese. That's it, all right? Um, but for whatever reason, Yip Man and uh, the initial crew that established the Wing Chun Athletic Association in 1966 settled on that spelling. Now, for the T-S-U-N part, well, in certain phonetic systems, T-S makes a T-S sound, but like a very sharp one, all right? But not quite the same as in English. So it's not, it's T-U-N, it's not Cha-Cha, it's not this Cha-Cha-Cha, like mm -hmm. we say in English. It's not Chun, it's T-U-N, so there's a little T in there, right? Um, and that's why actually in some phonetic systems, TS is actually a very accurate way to pronounce that second character because it's not 
chun. Right, yeah. It's not chun. chun. Wing chun. Wing chun. It's not t-san. Mm-hmm. It's not wing chun. Wing chun. So it's a little bit sharper. And so in some systems, that's actually accurate spelling. But what Siva Lerngting did is when he uh, was teaching at the Wing Chun Athletic Association, the V-I-N-G-T-S-U-N, he resigned. This is all while Yip Man was still alive. And then he opened his own gym. And what he did was he just changed the way he spelled the first word to W-I-N-G, which is more phonetically accurate. And then he retained the second part, which was the T-S-U-N. And then that spelling became his trademark for his association. Whereas V-I-N-G-T-S-U-N is, for all intents and purposes, now kind of also a bit of a generic spelling for Wing Chun, the way W-I-N-G-C-H-U-N is, because no one particular line uses V-I-N-G-T-S-U-N exclusively. Wong Sun Leung guys use that spelling. A lot of Moyet guys use that spelling. Some other Wing Chun schools use that spelling. So the V-I-N-G-T-S-U-N spelling is kind of like also now kind of a bit of a generic spelling for the art, but it should always be pronounced Wing Chun. Wow. Right. So right. I get a getting a knowledge bomb right at the beginning there of the episode. There you go, right Thank there. You very much. All right, that's the end of the episode. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> do, 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 do. Mm-hmm. Boo. Okay, right. cool. Anyway, sorry, Sifu Adrian, mm-hmm. let's get back to your question. Good. Okay. So for students learning Wing Chun, mm-hmm. what do you consider in the order of importance a student should focus on when they are practicing their Wing Chun? For example, having a solid stance, keeping their elbows tucked, remembering to keep a relaxed state, especially the shoulders and arms, ability to use your waist power, keeping your form, etc. I find that most students tend to skip these basics to do the more interesting things, and as a result, don't understand why their application of the form and techniques are not as effective. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. That's essentially um, the, the difference between um, drilling very solid fundamentals before moving on to more advanced material or having the students practice versus having students practice something a little bit more organically and then kind of fix these issues over time. And those are actually two schools of thought in terms of teaching movement, all right? Um, Because we have, the brain is not really good at processing more than one directive at a time, okay? So uh, this is also one of the notes that I give my instructors when I do instructor training is like, you can only fix one thing at a time. So when a student is performing, let's say, to use a very generic example, the siunam tau form, and the instructor is like, oh, your knees are not in the right position, you gotta push your hips forward, uh, posture up, back straight, uh, shoulder back, shoulder down, elbow in, elbow in this. The student has, they've lost you. The only only correction they remember is the last one of those seven you just gave them. Mm -hmm. Because we are are not very good as organisms in kind of focusing and trying to fix more than one thing at a time. So um, the other way of kind of looking at it is instead of like trying to fix everything at once, you just pick one thing to focus on at a time. And it doesn't mean that that thing has to be mastered before learning the next one. But uh, for example, if a student is doing the siunam tau form and you look at them as an instructor and as an instructor, it's so easy to write a checklist of things that they're doing wrong, okay? Uh, This position's a little bit wrong. This needs to be moved a little bit more to the center. Elbow should be in here more. Shoulders should be more relaxed. Stance is not right. Posture's not quite right. Head position's a little bit off. You have all these things that you can futz about. 
But if you tell them to do all those things, they're not going to remember any of them. They're going to remember one. So what you do, or at least the way I do it, is I look at the students, let's say, to use this example, you're teaching them the Siunam Tal form. And I look at what is the most egregious offender of all the mistakes that they're making, okay? Uh, so if the student has like their head forward and they're hunched over, all right, then I'm not going to worry totally about the relaxation. I'm going to say, hey, we need to focus on posture. Let's just focus on posture a little bit. And even though they're making hundreds of other mistakes, the instructor is the one that has to have the discipline to shut their mouth because you cannot correct those hundred things at once. So get the student to fix one thing at a time, or at the very least to focus only on one thing, even if they don't quote unquote fix it right away. So a student that is naturally super, super tense, I'm going to really focus on relaxation for them and worry a little bit less about the individual positions because if I start futzing on that stuff, it's gonna take their focus away from relaxing, which is what I want them to do. Once they can kind of generally relax well enough, then I can go, okay, what's number two on the biggest mistakes that they're making and then go for that one, all right? So in teaching martial arts, uh, there are these kind of schools of thought where it's like you just drill the student in boring, dry basics until they have those basics perfect. And once they have those basics perfect, you can actually then teach them very quickly. And the problem with that method is the modern human doesn't like that because we, are an in, we live in an instant gratification model. Um, and we wanna know if we're doing something, why are we doing it? What is the benefit of doing this? How is this gonna make me better? And how am I gonna, how am I gonna be able to use this now? And this is directly at odds with traditional Chinese Kung Fu teaching and also directly at odds with many other traditional movement uh, um, arts, even like ballet and stuff like that. I mean, look at the fundamental ballet training. It does not look like the beautiful dances you see. It's, mm -hmm. it's the basics, right? So the one school of thought, if you have a disciplined student, is that you just work on quote unquote Boring basic. I love basics, all right? But I'm just using that in quotes, right? Yeah. Simple, almost somewhat divorced from the fighting application because it's like you just stand there in the stance, you work on this movement, you do this, you know, to make sure your shoulders are down, posture is upright, whatever it is, right? And as you get better at all these things, once you have a mastery of those fundamentals, then it's actually easy for the instructor to teach the student quickly because if they've laid a very solid foundation of basics for however long it takes you to teach the basics of your style, six months, one year, two years, depends, then you can actually do the advanced training relatively quickly because they have the stance, they have the waist power, the posture, the elbow position, the relaxation, all that stuff. The problem is that you need to have students who are fully invested in learning in that way, all right? now. If we really compare the two, because at various times in my 20 plus years of teaching, I've taught some private students very traditionally. And then I've taught other private students in a way more progressive and modern way. And our group training here is kind of a little bit of a mix of both. So I have a little bit, could be considered anecdotal. It's definitely not empirical, but it's also personal. So like what, from what I've seen and it's very difficult to say which one is better because it's multifactorial in its application. If you're talking about teaching in a modern society, in a, a group class in a modern society, 
All right. We're not in Qing Dynasty, China. We're not in a Dreisen hypothetical. You, you, you can't really teach this. I teach in this way where it's just nothing but fundamentals for six months, one year, two years, whatever it is in your style and dry, boring, somewhat divorced from the actual application of Wing Chun because you're just learning fundamentals. That is not really going to fly for if you want your school to be successful commercially, which might not be an issue, which might not be a consideration for some people, uh, but it also won't fly in terms of the general interests of the modern student. They're gonna go like, why do I have to just stand here in the stance and put my elbow in this position and think about relaxing? Why? Just do it. If you do it, then you'll know at some point. It's very difficult to find people who are going to accept that kind of uncritical, I trust my Sifu, and I'm gonna do what my Sifu says, all right? However, if the student's specific attitude, the specific student's attitude was that, I just wanna train hardcore basics for however long it takes to learn the basics, nothing but boring basics, I don't care about application fighting, whether I can do anything after a year, or I'm just able to stand in the stance really well. That is actually the fastest way to teach someone because if you really work on the basics and they get those basics down perfect, then you can teach all the advanced training because all the advanced training is nothing but basics consolidated on top of each other. So technically, the slow, boring way is actually also the fast way to learn Wing Chun. It's, yeah. The problem is it's very difficult to find people nowadays who are going to do that. <laughs> you might find individuals, and I know that whenever I say stuff like, well, what I learned or uh, well, when I teach my students, and again, confirmation bias, you're talking about specific situations. Where I'm talking about general on the whole as someone who has taught openly publicly in one of the world's major cities for over 20 years. I know something about teaching Wing Chun to the public, okay? I also know something about teaching Wing Chun privately. So that's where I'm speaking from. I'm not speaking of specific people who are different. I'm speaking in generalities. So that's difficult to do. The modern student wants to know, like Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? That's the question they constantly ask their style. Cool, I'll learn the form, but I also wanna know how to stop someone from grabbing me in this way or taking me to the ground or hitting me with a swing. Mm -hmm. So the, the modern way of teaching is generally a combination of both, where you have to teach students fundamentals. Obviously, without fundamentals, they're not gonna be able to do any Wing Chun. But you also have to curb your expectations in terms of how how much of only fundamentals a beginner is willing to do before their brain explodes um, versus I also want to learn how to defend myself. Because if you walk into a boxing gym, you'll learn boxing right away. If you learn to go into a jujitsu school, you'll start rolling and doing all this stuff right away. You go into a Wing Chun school and you got to stand in a horse stance for six months to a year. That might be the better way to teach it, but that's not going to allow you to be competitive in the marketplace of ideas because people are going to want to know yeah, uh, what happens if someone tries to punch me in the face, all right? No, no, train your relaxation and low elbow and your kibyaun and your stance, okay? Trust me, one day all this will make sense. That very well may be true, but the students are gonna be like, uh, I need to be able to do something. So I think if you're going to teach successfully in a modern day, you need to balance both, where you obviously focus on fundamentals and basics, because without that, there is 
no martial art. Wing Chun is not an exception. But you also have to teach them how to defend punches and attacks and kicks and people trying to grab you and tackle you parallel to that. And you're going to have to teach them those things. And I know this is very difficult for traditional Wing Chun instructors to accept. You're going to have to teach the students some applications so that they learn to defend themselves when their basics are still not perfect. Okay? <laughs> All right? Because... On one hand, we would like to train nothing but basics, so then we could teach them really fast in the future. But there is one advantage to learning application and learning to move and learning to use this stuff before your quote unquote basics are mastered, in that when you learn what something is for, you're often more incentivized to train the basics to get good at it. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if I tell you how important Siwanam Tao is, all right, how important the stance training, the posture, the elbow position, the relaxation, the shoulder position, upright spine, I can tell you that stuff to blue in the face. All right. But until you actually experience it, then you're not going to truly be incentivized to actually put in the time to do it. But if you show a student by demonstration, by training, look, when you get better at your Siunam Tao, you're going to be able to do this thing better, but let me show you how to use it now. So they have an idea. And then with that little idea, they're able to then train their basics with more focus and intention because they know, ah, this thing that I'm struggling with in sparring, I can train it here in the form and get better at it. So I actually find that although there are advantages to the traditional way, if you had someone who could handle that kind of training, the modern method I actually think has a lot of advantages in that the students are starting to see a little quicker what this stuff is for so they can be more incentivized to train their basics. So I think that is actually a more practical way of going about it. Marrying the kind of modern pragmatic way of doing it while learning basics. I don't think students should do nothing but basics before they learn application. I think they should learn them both at the same time. And this is the tide that rises all ships. The application will inform the basics. The basics will inform the application. And then they go up like this over time. I think that's the better way to do it. Hardcore students are always going to train their basics on their own anyway. right? So it's also a matter of the individual's diligence and uh, motivation. So anyway, that's my answer to that. That yeah, makes perfect sense. I mean, essentially, you're having to judge each case by its own merits. Yes, which is difficult to do in a group class because group class, you have to kind of teach the same way for everyone. Private training is a different story. You know, some people really, they, you know, they come to do private lessons. They're like, I really want to learn in a very traditional way. And other people are like, I want to learn very fast. And so you have to adjust it. Private lessons is really where you have the flexibility to adapt it to the individual. The group class has to be set in such a way that it gives the most number of benefits to the widest number of people within that same setting. So a group class has to kind of fulfill self-defense needs, uh, classical martial art needs, fitness, practical application. You have to have all of those points have to be kind of hit in a regular class. That's why when you look at the way we teach classes here, we do a little bit of self-defense at the beginning. We do warm up, which is fundamentals. We do form, basics, foundation, footwork. Then we do partner exercises. And then we do some sparring at the end, whether it's Chi Sao or Wing Chun versus non-Wing Chun. And then we usually have a workout. So you have your self-defense, you have your practical application, you have your fundamental basics, foundation stuff. Um, you have the classical martial art, for lack of a better term. You have your workout and all that kind of stuff, all in one class. Yeah. In a way where in private lessons, you can do it much more individual. You, you can dial up the volume dial on the thing that student wants more or needs more. But in the regular class, it has to be able to 
serve the greatest number of people. And that's why the super traditional Wing Chun teaching method is just going to bore the shit out of people. And it's not necessary. You can teach really, really good Wing Chun without boring the crap out of them. And students do not have to have perfect basics to get good at Wing Chun. Mm -hmm. Because as they get better at the applications, then they start to see why they need to be better at the fundamental stuff instead of hoping that they're going to learn all the fundamental stuff perfectly without knowing what it's for. This is not... Once you give someone a good why, why they need to do something, then the motivation is there. But mm -hmm. if they don't really have a good why, what do you expect the students to do in a modern day? They're going to go on to the next thing. That's true. You know? I mean, I guess, and also that's where it comes in as a teacher because, you know, you get people who come in through the door who know. Like when I came here, I knew I wanted to do this. Right. Like that was, there was never a question. You mean take Dre's old job? Yeah, absolutely. This, right. is why, yeah, this is why I went through all of, you know, the, what's it, like the gauntlets and all that just yeah. so I could be It was here. just a big long con to get that, to get the prestigious job of a, yeah. a, a first British co-host of the Kung Fu Genius <laughs> podcast. But like, yeah, but like, no, seriously, it's like, so I already knew, so it wasn't a problem. But then you get other people who come in who, as you would say, just kind of, you know, dipping their genitalia into it. <laughs> Their genitalia, you, you put know. it so, so mildly. <laughs> and uh, classy guy, you know, and it's like, okay, cool. So now you have to kind of, that's when you have to kind of show them a little bit, just be like, kind of like, this is why, this is why you should stay here. Right, you right. Know, as opposed to, I don't know, go off and do MMA or like, you know, judo or, or like any other art that you do, you know what I mean? Right. And so, yeah, I mean, that's all, I guess. Yeah. The worst is when we lose them to Cuban judo. Judo no, I got a gun. Judo no, I got a knife. That's the worst. All right. Yes, you're the worst. All Terrible. Right. So what else you got for me? I say he can say that he's half Cuban. Yeah, that's right. Before people cancel me, I'm half Cuban. <laughs> all right. Okay, cool. No, that was fascinating. Um, all right. So, um, oh my God, I sounded so sarcastic. Apologies. I wasn't being sarcastic. I actually meant that. Yeah. Um, it, you're a hard read with that accent. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Which, is, which has, is a blessing and a curse. Right. <laughs> All right, let's go. So what if you could transport back in time for a front row seat into the life and legacy of one of the most respected Wing Chun masters in history? Gong Sao Wong, a tribute, directs students on Sifu Wong Shulung, offers you just that. Through a series of exclusive conversations, 25 direct students share anecdotes, reflections, and personal stories offering in-depth understanding of the man behind the legend. Order your copy today across 12 Amazon marketplaces with free shipping. I absolutely love this book, and I think you'll find it an indispensable part of your collection. I can't recommend Recommend it enough. Get yours today. Go to Amazon, type in Gong Sao Wong, and there you go. Okay, so um, next question. TK, thanks for answering my question. Next one. What are your favorite stretches? Favorite stretches? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Stretch reminds Armstrong. Me, stretch Armstrong. <laughs> um, that actually reminds me of a very funny... Uh, story, I may have told this a long time. I think I told this on Dudes of Kung Fu a long time ago, maybe in an early KFG episode. But uh, as, as I realized, a lot of our new fans haven't heard the uh, older stuff. So I, I'm at the point now where I think I can recycle some old stories. Um, so I'll tell you a very funny story. A good friend of mine, um, Damon Honeycutt. Damon Honeycutt was a student of uh, Pauly Zink in Tai Sing Pekwar Monkey Kung Fu. And uh, Damon uh, used to live here in New York many years ago. And... Um, I, I remember seeing his flyers in Chinatown at the martial arts stores. And his flyer was like him doing a headstand. Ooh. And, uh, uh, and then he also taught monkey kung fu. And I just thought it was really cool. So uh, somehow I ended up linking up with him. He needed a space to teach. So he started to teach out of my school. 
uh, and he was teaching his students both Taoist yoga and um, Taiseng Pekwar. And it was cool because when I was a kid, I was a huge Pauli Zink fan and Damon was a student of Pauli Zink and I eventually got to meet Pauli Zink and stuff. But I had the chance to learn some Taoist yoga from both Damon and uh, um, Pauli Zink, which was really cool. I mean, I'm definitely not at the level of Pauli Zink or anything like that, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was very instructive because a lot of the stuff that I teach in terms of movement and, and flexibility nowadays to my Wing Chun students, well, a lot of that was heavily influenced by what I learned from both Damon and uh, from Pauli. Uh, so really very blessed that I had a chance to, to, to learn from those, those two gentlemen, especially from Damon. And Damon has been a very good friend and brother for a very long time. Um, Damon once told me this really funny story. So before Damon came to, uh, uh, monkey Kung Fu, he, you know, as a young kid, he grew up in Oregon. He did karate, like most kids kind of growing up back in the day. And uh, he learned karate from someone. Now, this is o only old school heads like me and other people in a similar situation are going to know this. If you look at the old Inside Kung Fu magazines, Black Belt magazines, I'm going to say from the 80s, but also from the really from the 90s, there used to be an ad in there from a guy called the Speed Man. All right. I know. I know exactly where your mind goes when I say something like that, right? I was not selling speed. Um, but he was like a Kenpo karate guy, right? And um, it was one of those, uh, you know, you have different types of advertising and you have what's known as long, um, long form advertising, which is like, it's like a whole page, like a written page where yeah. you're, where people read it and they get really into it and then they order the product as opposed to it just being like a cool visual, like buy our product, right? So you have this long form, form thing where he's like, you know, learn the secrets of speed hitting, you know, where you can hit a guy. I'm, I'm going to make up a number, but I'm probably not too far off. Like you hit the guy 20 times in one second, like some ridiculous <laughs> thing like that, right? You know, disarm any attacker. It's like, you know, you do all these like speed hits or whatever. And it's like this burly Kempo karate guy with a beard, like, you know, with his black karate gi, like standing like this. And he was the speed man, right? And he was a Kempo karate instructor. And he sold this course in Black Belt Magazine inside Kung Fu. And so anyone who has those old uh, issues probably remember that ad. So anyway, Damon, when he was young, he actually went to that guy's karate school. Like the, the, the speed man, I forget what the guy's name is, right? But he's this Kempo karate guy and very typical of American Kempo. You know, we think of American Kempo, you think of Ed Parker. I also think of like Elvis Presley and stuff, like just kind of very cheese ball, like, you know, some karate guy and like a, with, a, with a gut hanging over his black belt going like, all right, come over here and punch me, right? And, this is the dragon strike, you know, like it's kind of old school American karate stuff, right? And so anyway, Dame, when Damon was young, he was learning from this guy and apparently, all right, and I could, again, this is a story that was told to me by Damon many, many years ago, so if I get the facts a little bit off, it's, it's been a while, but the, this is the gist of the story. So I guess they didn't really do stretching at the beginning of their classes, all right? right. So, which is atypical for karate. If you've been to any American karate school, you know the first 10, 15 minutes is the ceremonial right to stretching and warming up before you start doing anything. And this was a karate school, I guess they didn't really stretch, Mm -hmm. And they just went into it. And apparently one time one of the students asked the sensei, the speed man, mm -hmm. sensei, how come we don't stretch at the beginning of class? And the great sensei's answer was, you ever see a deer stretch? <laughs> Which has become one of my favorite go-to lines. 
I will say this all this. Obviously, people have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, but you will hear me throughout the course of the day occasionally say, you ever see Deer Stretch? All right. Which is funny because I always imagine that there would be a follow up question of that. Like, you ever see Deer Stretch? You want to? <laughs> <laughs> He's I got, do actually. He's got some deer in the back doing yoga and he's like, come on, look, look, right? But the funny thing is in my mind's eye, I can actually, I think I have seen a deer stretch, like put its arms forward and go back, but I could be confusing that with dogs. Or cats. Yeah, or cats, right? But I, I can imagine that deers in fact do stretch. Oh yeah. But that wasn't his point. In his mind, deers don't stretch. The point was that they are ready to go whenever. Right. Like most animals, right? Yeah. And there's a certain logic to that. For example, in Wing Chun, you know, Wing Chun does not have a tradition of doing stretching before class because we, we or at the beginning of class because we don't have high kicks and stuff. I'm sure there are Wing Chun schools that do those kind of more classic stretches, but we are not one of them because the idea is that if you roll out of bed and someone attacks you, you got to be ready to go, right? You can't, uh, you cannot ask your opponent. All right, you're assuming you're fighting whoever you're in bed with. I'm just saying someone <laughs> broke into your house, all right? I just have this image of just rolling out of bed in some kind of like, you know, just been like, Wah! Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? like, There's a ninja standing in your tidy whiteies. Yeah, and you got to do a kip up in your tidy whiteies <laughs> and beat up this ninja who's broken into your house, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, the idea is that, uh, you know, the range of motion in Wing Chun is not phenomenal. We're not doing high kicks, spins, jumps, or whatever. So the idea is that, you know, you kind of walk and roll out and someone attacks you, you should be ready to go, right? You shouldn't. Uh, require the ceremonial right to stretch before the fight. Wait a minute, hold on. And then you start doing your jumping jacks and you start lifting, you know, doing, doing all the stretches. Like, okay, I am ready, right? You don't have that chance. You got to be able to go. But that is, that is a different story. Like, I, I get that. And when I started Wing Chun, I mean, I came from a heavy Taekwondo background, which was all about the warm-ups and the stretches and everything, because you have to do that if you're going to be doing those Taekwondo kicks. So when I came to Wing Chun, it's like, oh, Wing Chun doesn't do that because Wing Chun doesn't have high kicks. You got to be able to go. And I remember as a teenager, that was super appealing. Like, yeah, of course, I'm not going to be able to warm up and stretch. And what kind of bullshit is that? If someone attacks me, I got to be able to go. And as a teenager, I'm like, yeah, even though I was already very flexible, I was like, yeah, Wing Chun's great. We don't even stretch in Wing Chun. Like, you know, F stretching. That's for a bunch of yoga pansies, right? <laughs> um, but then what you realize when you start doing this for a while is that warming up, first of all, warm up doesn't have to be a stretch. As a matter of fact, I don't recommend doing any kind of hardcore stretching at the beginning of your session. Because when you do hardcore stretching, you also to a certain degree, tear the muscle fibers a little bit in a very similar way to when you do strength training. And so if you're going to be using your kicks for power, you don't want to be doing things that are going to tax your leg muscles before you do that. That's why any kind of hardcore stretching or stretching routine is best done at the end of class or after class. Because first of all, you're already physically warm, less chance of injury. And then you do your stretching as opposed to at the beginning of class when you're still kind of cold and you're pulling on stuff and then your legs are tired for the actual training, right? So uh, warming up just means you physically warm up your body so that you're prepared for the training. That does not necessarily mean you have to do stretching. Could be jumping jacks, moving around in place, jogging around the school, um, getting the blood flowing, couple push-ups, you know, joint warm up from head to toe, like simple stuff. And then you're kind of ready to go. The, the older I get, the more I realize actually that is very important for your training. You might not need to stretch or warm up to do your Wing Chun if someone attacks you as you're, you shouldn't have to do that. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it for your training, 
where you're practicing. Mm -hmm. Because a big part of that is also making sure that you're more physically able to do the martial art and your the the body the temple is in good working order right so i mean there is utility to stretching and warming up beyond the fact that you know we don't need it in wing chun so we shouldn't do it there is utility for that as as an athlete as a martial artist as a human being um so when it comes to stretching though like i do that stuff usually at the end of class i have my famous hip six stretch um, and for those of you who want to see the hip six stretch, it's actually on my Instagram. I did a reel where I showed it in the summer. So you can maybe look back uh, June, July, August on my Instagram. There's a reel where I actually show the hip six and I kind of explain it. That is a real great quote unquote stretch to do at the end of class. It focuses on the hips, which is very important for Wing Chun. Obviously a little hamstring, calf, and, and uh, ankle flexibility, but the main thing is really the hips. If you have mobile hips, you're more able to kick well. And I like that one because it puts the hips in all the different positions. So you have kind of sagittal plane, you have the hips on the outside, you have them going out, going in, both for side kick, slant kick, front kick. It's a really great, simple sequence where you kind of hit everything. But if you're a little bit more serious, you probably need to get on some kind of regular stretching protocol like our stretchy guy program that we do, right? Oh, yeah, I love Where you're that doing guy. something where you're kind of building it up both from strength and uh, stretching perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a couple, I think if if you guys go, it's called hyperbolic stretching. Yes. And the guy's name's Alex Larson, Dr. Alex, Alex Larson. Yeah, and so you can buy like a little course for him where, where he shows side splits and front splits and uh, this kind of great way to strengthen your hip flexors at the mm -hmm. same time you are improving the flexibility. So I think that course is really good. Um, but for normal Wing Chun training, I think the hip six is pretty solid. And obviously I have a whole uh, set of stretches and movement for mobility, specifically for Wing Chun. Because Wing Chun, we do have certain mobility requirements in the shoulders, in the wrists, in the ankles, in the hips, in order to do Wing Chun competently. And so it, not everyone has that full range of mobility in the wrist, shoulders, ankles, and hips. So that's quite literally why I wrote a book called Martial Arts Movement for Wing Chun. Has if, a DVD with it. It has a DVD and you can get access to the video online as well. Um, for those of you who don't have a DVD player. Um, if I were to retitle that book, I would call it Move Like Yip Man. All right. Mm -hmm. Because uh, uh, what I did was, is I looked at Yip Man's photos of when he's doing the different palm strikes, when he's in a squat with his heels flat, where he's lifting his leg. And I'm like, yeah, these are the basic movement requirements to do Wing Chun well. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have X amount of mobility in your shoulders to be able to bring your elbows in. Because bringing your elbows in is not an elbow problem, it's a shoulder problem, all right? <laughs> uh, the elbows themselves don't need to be flexible. Your shoulders and your, and your back, your upper back need to be flexible. So I have a book where I have like a whole section on things to improve your shoulder mobility for Wing Chun, your wrist mobility for Wing Chun, ankle mobility so you can get your feet flat on the floor as you need for Wing Chun and hip mobility, mainly the hip six and a few other things. So if you are interested in stretches, in mobility, I literally wrote a book where you could just title it Move Like Yip Man because the, the um, minimum movement requirements I used were from Yip Man's photos. And Yip Man was quite flexible, but he, he wasn't like, he wasn't like uber flexible. Like he wasn't like a, some kind of contortionist or anything like that. I don't see why any um, 
average built person couldn't be able to move the way he does. Obviously, people who are very heavily muscled or a little, or have different impingements and stuff, obviously you're gonna have to make adjustments. You're not gonna be able to move exactly like a five foot two Chinese guy. Um, but by using his movement as kind of the standard in terms of mobility, that's why I wrote the book. And that's Martial Art Movement for Wing Chun. It's available in the pro shop. Link uh, for the pro shop is, is below in the description. And that's one of our best sellers. Actually on Amazon, that book outsells all the other books. Ah. We don't sell that book as much on our online shop. When people come to our online shop, they buy like wooden dummy, chum cue, all that stuff. But Amazon, those people really like the movement book on Amazon. So we, oh, wow. uh, we, we sell that one there as well. So cool. Nice. What else you cool. got? All right. So um, we have Ahmed. He actually has two questions. Okay. But, um, yeah, I think he comments pretty regularly. I remember yeah. seeing that name. Yeah, so, but I'm actually going to go with his second question because it looks, um, first one we can do later. Well, you're drunk with power being the new co-host. Oh, you I can know. decide what question. <laughs> yeah. Finally, right? Finally. Yeah, a long con to get rid of Dre. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a con. It was a very, very detailed plan. That's right, that's right. Anyway, sorry, you know, that's not true. I got it through merit. Anyway, Amit, hello Sifu Alex. As someone with multiple schools in the US and some of them with stiff competition, a magazine, books, immersion courses, and on and on, you've done very well for yourself in the field of physical culture. Any material you went through that you now recommend that sharpened with your business acumen? I was a lecturer of fitness sciences for almost a decade now that I'm venturing into the commercial field and dealing with clients and not diploma pursuing students, I am falling short on some things. I'm sure lots of martial art teachers are facing the same. Thank you. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole business side of running a martial arts school, which is separate from the skills of doing martial arts and all that kind of stuff. And we have to learn how to kind of balance doing martial arts business with um, teaching the martial art in a way that we find fit and ethical and uh, fulfilling as instructors. Um, there are lots of resources. Um, you know, everything that I learned about martial arts business, I learned from different sources, from taking courses on how to run schools, reading different books and things like that. There are actually now, unlike when I started, there are a lot of resources online in terms of learning these kind of things. Um, oddly enough, although it's not exactly the same, um, marketing a gym, like if you have a fitness studio, uh, is that's different obviously from doing a martial arts school, but the parallels between gym marketing and martial arts marketing are, are very solid. So I would actually recommend if you cannot find someone local like a martial arts business consultant or online where you can uh, download a course in terms of like how to set up your programs and things like that. There are plenty of resources online for helping people who own gyms, small gyms, market their gyms. And I would say easily 90% of that information. I know this because I just got a book recently about um, marketing a fitness gym, all right? And I think it's called like Market Your Gym. It's like a book or whatever. And I just started reading a couple weeks ago. And it's amazing because all the marketing concepts are the same as, you know, these are tried and true marketing concepts regardless of business. And most of the time when you're marketing a gym, it's pretty much the same as marketing a martial arts school. So you can actually apply a lot of gym marketing tactics for smaller gyms uh, to your martial arts school or whatever. 
There are a lot of resources online. Um, nowadays, it's much easier. You, you can literally just type into Google, like, help me market my martial arts school, see what comes up. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of shady people out there who are going to try to sell you very expensive programs, but there are a lot of people out there who give out good information. There's lots of good books and stuff out there where you can do it. So the main thing is uh, you always have to build your program to solve a problem that your clients have. And that's a difficult thing for martial art teachers because we always think about, I want to teach my martial art to the public. No one cares about your martial art. People want to have a problem solved. What is that problem? Self-defense, fitness, uh, boredom, whatever their problem is, you have, to, you have to be the solution for that. And you can't just say, well, I'm going to teach Wing Chun or I'm going to teach Jeet Kune Do and I'm going to open a school and then people are going to flock to me because I'm teaching this. No, you need to find something that the people, you need to find a problem that the people have and you need to be the solution for that. All right. Um, the hero of the story is not the instructor. It's the student. The instructor, is the, the, the hero of the original Star Wars trilogy is Luke, all right? The martial arts school owner is tr always trying to be Luke. Your Yoda, your student is Luke. That's how you have to market it, all right? <laughs> they are the centerpiece of their own story, not you, not your style, not how authentic you are. And this is the biggest difficult paradigm shift, maybe not necessarily here for Amit, but for uh, very traditional Wing Chun Sifus. Right? Because what is the main thing that they feel that they, they have of value? I teach traditional, authentic, classical Wing Chun. No one gives a shit. <laughs> the, the person who gives a shit, they will find you. And there's three of them in your town. Okay? How are you going to market your school openly? Well, how does your school make people's lives better? All right? And then start from there. Not from, oh, I'm so super special because I'm the guy that teaches this stuff. Literally, no one gives a shit about that. So that's cool. what I would say. All right, Excellent. what else you got? Nice. Well, you know, I think I'll give him his, uh, his first question second. Oh, um, wow. Hey, KFG, Dre and TFG. Mm -hmm. No so, Dre anymore. No Dre anymore. So I'll take the TFG moniker. Awkward. No <laughs> Question. Mount Rushmore of Kung Fu Flicks. You mentioned Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, Lau Ka Lung. Who else? Isn't Mount Rushmore only four? It is. So I guess, but <laughs> <laughs> let's have a second Mount Rushmore. The Mount Rushmore of uh, martial choreographers uh, just or stars. A, um, I don't remember. I remember the conversation, but I was it the was it the Mount Rushmore of martial art choreographers or stars or both? I feel like it was choreographers. I feel like it was because. There was a specific talk about Samo, I think, in that yeah, regard. I mean, yeah, I mean, Bruce Lee, obviously, he did some choreography. I wouldn't say his strong suit was choreography, but he did essentially choreograph most of his own fight scenes, and those fight scenes still hold up and people still like them. So you could technically say Bruce Lee was a choreographer, although definitely not at the level of someone like Samo Hung and... Um, Lau Ka Lung and Jackie Chan, but that's also because they had much longer to get good at that craft, right? Um, Bruce Lee not only died at 32, but basically made all of those films within two years. So he learned very quickly and he was getting better and better, but we don't, we don't know where uh, he would have gone. But I think that, you know, because Bruce was such a pragmatist in terms of like making things look 
kind of real, although his fight scenes are not necessarily super realistic with multiple attackers, but he wanted there to be some bite and some punch, right? Whereas like Jackie and Samo and Lau Kar Leung, especially what came out in later years after Bruce Lee died is like the idea of using the environment in the fight scene, which Jackie Chan and Samo I think were the best at, like, okay, you're in this room. What are the unique things in this room that you can add to the fight scene? How do you use this couch or this uh, refrigerator in the fight, you know, like kind of going 3D in the fight scene, not just the two guys fighting, but like the environment and what kind of found weapons would they use? You know, like Jackie Chan, even something just picking up a chair and throwing it at someone, right? We're just added to this kind of chaos, which was in so carefully choreographed in this beautiful ballet. I think those are the top guys for choreography. Bruce Lee, because he was the first one to change the face of what choreography meant, like in the fist fighting movies. When you look at, you know, it's, uh, and I know that there, there are Hong Kong film fans that disagree with me because, um, there were kung fu movies that predated Bruce Lee, obviously. You have all the Kwan Ta King, Wong Fei Hong serials. Shaw Brothers made a number of sword and fist movies. And you have, you know, Five Fingers of Death with Lo Lee, which came out before Bruce Lee's films. And you have Jimmy Wang Yu and all this stuff. But when you really look at it, and, and I get it, I'm not a huge fan of those films just because there was rock and roll before the Beatles. Yeah. But when you look at music history, there's the time before the Beatles and the time after the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And when I look at Hong Kong Kung Fu choreography, there was the time before Bruce Lee and the time after Bruce Lee. And when you look at the fist fighting movies that came out before Bruce Lee, mm, they were good for the time. They were good internationally. They weren't good. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. People like Jimmy Wang Yu, but for me, Jimmy Wang Yu is the David Carradine of Hong Kong cinema. All right. Look at One Arm Boxer, and besides whatever nostalgia you might have for that film, or One Arm Swordsman, um, whatever nostalgia you might have for that film or whatever, I mean, the choreography, you cannot compare it to the choreography of films that came 10 years after. Yeah. So that's why I think Bruce was the first one. And even though, He's maybe not mostly known as a choreographer, but his input in choreography changed the face of fist fighting films in Hong Kong, whether you like it or not. The stuff before Bruce Lee was not the same. Uh, then obviously you have Jackie Chan. And when Jackie Chan started to do his own choreography, then you really saw his brilliance. Same thing with Sammo Hung and same thing with Lau Kala. So I have to stand that that is the Mount Rushmore of Hong Kong film choreographers right there. Because Jet Li's not really a choreographer. Donnie Yen has done choreography, but I mean, no one is going like, oh, Donnie Yen's choreography is the shit. Obviously, you have other choreographers, Yun Wu Peng and things, but no, I'm going to stick with those four. That's, uh, as they say in some game shows, that's my final answer. <laughs> All right. Are you sure? Don't want to phone a friend? Nope. I'm not phoning a friend on that one. No lifelines? No lifelines. Go 50-50. Nope. All right, I'm going to save those for later. We want to get closer to a million. <laughs> this question, pretty easy to answer.
Fair play. All right, what else you got for me? Hey, Kung Fu Genius fans. If you like what we do here, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll get early access to episodes and other goodies not posted on the Kung Fu Genius channel. With higher levels of support, you can get your name in the description, a live chat with me, or at the baller level, you even get your own personal KFG episode with me as my guest. The link to our Patreon page is in the description of this episode below. Patreons have a direct link to chat with me and get first dibs on any questions for Ask Me Anything episodes. Click on the link in the description for our Patreon page for more information, and I'll see you on Patreon. All right. Okay, cool. So, um... Next one's from Chris. Hi, KFG. What are your opinions on the Bullworker Tensilator? Bruce Lee used to use one based on John Little's book, and Ted Wong had an old article where he mentioned that Bruce practiced lapsau and punching with it. Good supplementary training or way to switch up a routine on top of the more fundamental weight training and the rest? Thanks. Uh, so I, uh, although I'm obviously familiar with John Little's work, especially regarding the strength training stuff. I mean, we did an episode on Bruce Lee's strength training with, with John Little himself, the routines that he put in the art of expressing the human body, which is Bruce Lee's weight training routines. I actually have it in a binder here. So when our students use the gym, they can actually open it up and like Bruce Lee's favorite back exercises, Bruce Lee's enter the dragon workout routine. We have all that stuff there. So the students can actually do the same workouts Bruce Lee did, according to John Little's research. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not 100% sure what the tensilator is, all right? I'm sure everyone in the comments is going to know after they Google it. Um, <laughs> and they're going to be like, whoa, Kung Fu genius. I'm assuming he's talking about the electro-stimulator. It sounds like it, but there's right, no... Although there's I don't no understand real... how you would do lapsau or something like that with that on this. So the thing is... Because there's also a, whatever the bull worker is as well. Yeah, so I, I don't 100% know. I will need I will need to go back and... I mean, so maybe I'm sure I will be massively educated by everyone in the comments on this here. Tell me what the bulwark... Bull worker. Bull worker tensilator is, and then I can look it up, and then I'll, I'll come back to this in a future episode. Because I... Uh, off the top of my head, I would just be like, well, are we talking about the electro muscle stimulation thing um, or are we talking about something else? I um, mean, I, I, I just off the top of my head don't know. So I would, I would need more information to be able to look into you that. Could, you could pull a beardy and just like make it up. I could, but that's, that would be douchebaggery. And I, I, I want a real answer, which is why we have 2,000 views per episode and he's got a million because he'll make shit up. The Bullworker Tensilator... Uh, Actually, the guy who invented it uh, sent me the, the original design that he had designed it for Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah. And then later, the medical community contacted me. I mean, come on. Yeah, for the briefest of moment, you sounded like my pillow guy, Mike Lindell. All right, yay. Let's go. <laughs> hey, take uh -huh. it easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, okay, so um, next one. Oh, we got some good ones coming up. Here we go. Dan One Music TMM. All right. Grandmaster Jiang Yushan is the baddest martial artist out there teaching regardless of styles. Would like to see a Wing Chun master fight him in a, an unrestricted fight. Mm. Uh, can your dad... Uh beat up his dad or can well, your my dad can't because he's dead but like <laughs> can your can your sister beat up your female cousin can you know your high school bully <laughs> beat up someone else's high school bully i mean like at some point okay first of all i don't know who jeng yushen is okay i'm sure he's hardcore because this guy says he is all right what does it matter 
whether he can beat up this guy or not beat up that guy. How does that make you personally better at anything? All right, which is always my question. How, how does that knowledge do it? So, okay, for, so for example, Anderson Silva unfortunately lost his boxing fight with Jake Paul, okay? Who would you rather learn martial arts from? <laughs> do, would, do, yeah. do you want to learn martial arts from Jake Paul or would you rather learn from the great Anderson Silva? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, who gives a shit? Mm -hmm. All right, like this whole, like, who can beat up whom thing? Look, imagine someone is a really physically dominant person. They're super fit, they're naturally a really good fighter, and they're very, very aggressive. They might be able to fight more effectively based on these attributes, but that doesn't mean that they have transferable, teachable skills that they can give an average person to make them be able to fight better. Mm -hmm. And there's always this mistaken idea that the tough guy, badass fighter, uh, everything that comes out of their mouth is gospel truth, whereas the reason why they're such a good fighter could be because they're bestowed talent and physical attributes and aggressiveness and you know genetics and stuff like that right mm -hmm. and then so does that mean that everything they say in terms of martial arts has automatic validity because they happen to be the toughest guy in the circles that they travel in right so you know i get it when you're a teenager when you're younger who can beat up whom is like a very very big deal um but when you start having adult conversations about martial arts uh it's who's gonna make me better and how am I gonna get better? And you know, there's, there's this weird kind of voyeuristic feeling or voyeuristic, I should say, tendency among, I'm gonna say people in general, but my, the reason I say that's just like people in comments. Like, oh, I wanna see so-and-so fight so-and-so. Why? Like, so you can just sit back so you can be entertained? How does this make you better? Oh, cause you don't look at martial arts maybe as a personal journey as something that's about you you're interested externally in this style, that guy, this person, this person fighting this person, as if any of that stuff is gonna make you better. Uh, I stopped caring about that kind of stuff a long time ago. There are people out there who are really, really great fighters, but I wouldn't recommend anyone to learn from them because they're not good at teaching and what they have to teach is maybe not of value for people who are not built the way they are. You know what I mean? So um, besides the fact that I don't know who this particular Grandmaster Jiang is, um, who even cares? Who even cares, all right? If someone, I mean like, again, like my like Jake Paul thing, all right? Okay, uh, would you rather learn martial arts from Jake Paul or Anderson Silva? Jake Paul beat Anderson Silva in a boxing match on points. So, all right, who would you rather learn from, okay? So what does it matter if someone loses to someone? The thing is, what, what, what can you get out of it? And sitting back and watching people fight, um, in a kind of oddly voyeuristic and fetishistic kind of way, I think is not really the way to go about deciding what you want to do with your own martial arts journey. And I think people need to be more focused on what they're doing and less focused on who can beat up whom. Mm -hmm. Well, I always think when I hear, I don't know, comments or, or questions like this, is that there's this, in general, this kind of idea that like, you put two different styles, and when these people fight, they are gonna stick religiously to their style, right? Right, Which because makes zero sense when someone's pummeling your face. Yeah, it's two right? people fighting. So it's like, a person who wins in that moment, in that exchange, the better prepared person, not the style. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, exactly. So it's like it's like going back to that Sifu Rasen thing with the, mm -hmm. the, the Jeet Kune Do guy. Right, right, and, the and, Charlie Brown Jeet Kune Do yeah. guy, yeah. And what was the comments that everyone said on Instagram when they saw it? Why didn't he use Wing Chun? Right, 
Right. Why does it matter? And yeah, well, and also, first of all, I did actually see Wing Chun in there. The problem yeah. is that people have an unrealistic view of how uh, of Wing Chun looking like the drills in fighting. It's like mm -hmm. no, 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 you learn the drills to learn skills, and, and it doesn't necessarily look the same in fighting. Yeah, but like that was the other thing too. It's like literally, who cares? If 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 he's beaten up the other guy, and you go, oh, yeah, but he didn't do this thing or this thing from Wing Chun. It's like, well, where's the video of you fighting some weird dude who kind of showed up at your school and started problems, right? Like people say all these kind of things and it's like, you know, chill, dude. Like careful what you think you're able to do with the skills you have. And uh, also worrying about what other people are doing. I mean, there's so many board keto armchair warriors yeah. um, that it's like just, Focus on your own training. Focus on what you can do, what you can learn, how you can be better, and not worry about whether this guy can beat up this guy, all right? Imagine someone who has a really bad take on martial arts. Imagine someone who has a really bad attitude, someone who's got a bad take, someone who is a bad actor in terms of his character, in terms of the way he presents himself, uh, talks all sorts of shit, all right? And then there's another guy who's got a very kind of clear-headed, good method of teaching. And imagine this guy who's a bad guy can beat up the guy who's got the clear method of teaching. But the guy who's got the clear method of teaching is a way better instructor and way better role model for students. But this other guy, this kind of loudmouth, can beat him up. So does that now nullify what the better instructor has to teach? And does that mean now just because this guy can beat up this guy that we need to listen to him when it's just a matter of he's just a more aggressive fighter than the other guy, but the other guy's a way better teacher? Like, literally, who gives a shit? <laughs> All right. And, and, and this, it's so fetishistic and voyeuristic in terms of who could beat up whom that it's like, who cares? Yeah. All right. Because I guarantee you, if this grandmaster Jiang guy can beat up all the Wing Chun guys or beat up all the other guys there, I guarantee you I can go over to Henzo's right now here in Midtown and find some 19 year old kid who can who can grab this grandmaster guy by his ankles, slam him on the ground and just goon him and choke him with his own arm. So now is that Grandmaster Jiang guy's entire martial arts knowledge now nullified because there's some like crazy cat at Henzo's who can just goon him? Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Is that then the takeaway? And then so if Grandmaster Jiang beats up some uh, hobby Wing Chun guy who goes twice a week, now Wing Chun is no good. Like, I mean, just stop. Like, this is all bullshit. This is all, blah, 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 blah. This is all clickbait. This is all thumbnail bullshit. All mm -hmm. right. Like, let's let's go beyond this. Let's have some. Serious discussions of martial arts. I'm like, who could beat up whom? Yes. Jesus Christ. We should definitely have more serious discussions of martial arts. Yes. With a little levity here and there. Yes, of course. But geez, who gives a shit? <laughs> All right. So next question. <clears throat> Petros Sidiropoulos. I hope that I pronounced his last mm -hmm. name correctly. I'm mm -hmm. guessing he is probably Greek. <laughs> That's a good guess. <laughs> Great podcast. My compliments to KFG and team. If you could beat someone's ass and stay unpunished in some parallel universe or whatever, in parentheses, uh -huh. which one would that be? Bill Nye, Beardy, Dryson, Dr. Ison, some famous cheap blaster con man, all of them together? Kind regards. The British guy is hilarious. <laughs> well, he's in luck now. It's only the British guy. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I got promoted. Yeah. <laughs> No, it would have to be Beardy. I'd love <laughs> yeah. to beat the shit out of Beardy. Uh, only because I just want to see what this weasel looks like. Know, this right. kind of con man of Bruce Lee. What does he look like? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that would be very good. I mean, Bill Nye. Yeah, I mean, Bill Nye's a jerk. 
Um, and I've had my run-ins with Bill Nye, as I've talked about before. But Bill Nye doesn't deserve to get beat up. He just, you know, his own punishment is that he's an asshole. Um, but no, Beardy, yeah. I mean, you know, Dryson, I don't think anyone's ever catching that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it would definitely be Beardy. Oh, I would love just that. For, just to be like, just, I would want to see what this, this, this guy who makes up all this crap about Bruce, like, what does he look like? Like, who is this guy? I want to know his story. I want I want Ang Lee to make a biopic about Beardy. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah. You know the funny thing is is that like you know you've talked about how generally our audiences are like kind of, you know, like worlds apart, right? right? So like they don't really give a shit about us and vice versa. However, right. The comments on a couple of those Beardy bit the, the first one, yeah. I'm pretty sure there was a very small kind of overlap because I remember at least one comment commenter saying Maybe even in all com- caps, like yes. uh, Beardy would kick your ass. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I get that occasionally because, yeah, I mean, he has a lot of followers. So occasionally someone is going to come over, right? But it's, it's you know, uh, social media really silos you into these echo chambers. When mm-hmm. you start watching videos, you start getting all these videos fed to you, right? And then so I think that for the most part, they're like two different worlds. But there is... When I put Beardy in the title, probably some of his guys there and his fans, the type of people who believe the videos that Beardy makes up, Grandmaster Bax's photo of Dan Inosanto, Bruce Lee's, I mean, come on, like even the, the most casual of Bruce Lee fans knows that most of what Beardy puts in there is fake. A serious Bruce Lee fan knows that everything that Beardy puts in there is fake, but a casual one knows that at least some of it is fake, right? Uh, but if someone can believe that, then of course they also think he's an MMA champion and that he's this guy who trained like Bruce Lee for a year and then he's going to beat me up or whatever. Even though none of these Beardy watchers have seen Beardy. Yeah. The two photos he posted of himself in that training video are of two different personal trainers. We did a reverse Google image search. And oddly enough, I was, I was on Google the other day looking up something, I don't know, it was fitness related. And one of the photos that Beardy used of himself, one of the headless photos, came up in like an image search while I was looking up for something else. I'm like, Amazing. oh my, they, yeah. So Beardy didn't even go deep into Google to find a fake photo of himself, right? And you got guys who are literally holding water for a guy who was a charlatan. Yeah. I guarantee if you see him, he's some skinny neck kid with no martial arts training and he's just cashing in those YouTube checks. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. All right, what else you got? All right, so um, Tai Chi Q. Quo. Uh, quo. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's actually it's right Guo, I think, usually Guo. it's pronounced with a G, but if it's Taiwan, Taiwanese, I'll spell it with a K, but it's pronounced uh, with a G. Yeah, I was trying to, trying to get that. I couldn't, but it, I guess because, you know, um, British colony in Hong Kong, we didn't have to worry about that kind yeah. of thing because we just ruined the language. Yeah, and you guys don't know the difference between G and K anyway. <laughs> I mean. You know, Hong Kong is not Kong, it's Gong, 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 G. Then, then why does it have a K in it? That's because that's one. how you riddle guys me that spell Batman. it. All right. <laughs> Do you know how kung fu is actually pronounced? Gong, kung fu, gong, 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 gong with a G. But you guys write it with a K, well, and Hong Kong with a K. There's a reason why. All right. We we had an empire for a very long time. That's right. So we're great. Whenever there's a G, you guys make it a K. All right. <laughs> Oh, I know this even because, you know, Sifu Lang Teng, who's my Sikong, you know, grew up in Hong Kong with a British education system. Whenever he would sign his emails, he would sign it Sikong, but 
S-I-K-U-N-G. Yes, yeah, so I was about to say, should I just start calling you C-Kung? I'm going to kill you if you do that. <laughs> All right? Yeah. Okay, I'll, I won't do it except in public, in mm-hmm. front of everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, just I'm going to uh, I'm go to Ye West and I'm going to beg him to release Dre and bring him back to the podcast. All right? Okay. Yeah. So. Okay, all right. So, so Tai Chi Guo. Uh-huh. The other related topic I wish you covered when talking about the decline of Chinese, traditional Chinese Kung Fu is the proliferation of sport performance wushu marketed as Kung Fu. Lots of places for people to send their kids to learn how to use a rope dart and learn gymnastics floor routines, less places to send them to train and learn martial arts techniques. There really is this tension between new mainland China immigrant culture and longtime China diaspora culture, and this is one of the areas where it simmers up. Yeah, so this is a this is an eternal struggle in Chinese kung fu between uh, traditional kung fu, as taught in the old days, and as still uh, promoted in places like Hong Kong and Taiwan, versus mainland Chinese wushu, which is essentially an acrobatic version of the martial arts where they took the traditional Kung Fu forms and added gymnastics and floor routines and weapons done more for show and for fun. And that's like what Jet Li learned and stuff. And it's very visually entertaining, but um, they kind of took the bite out of it in terms of practical application, which is also why when they basically have Chinese Kung Fu known as Wushu, which is all these partner, well, uh, solo routines and some partner routines, and it's all for flash and for show, why they had to create Sanda as a kickboxing to have some kind of practical version because they kind of defanged traditional martial arts and made it a performance thing, right? And for the longest time as like a Wing Chun practitioner, you know, when you do traditional Chinese martial arts with Hong Hun, Chao Lei Fat, Zhao Ga Mantis, whatever, Wing Chun, you have this kind of thing about, ah, wushu is this kind of like crappy, acrobatic, watered down, fun looking, but useless martial art from China. And I do real Kung Fu. And then that being like a real point, you know, where you're like, ah, wushu is, wushu is just a bunch of performance gymnastics, right? With martial art shapes, right? And I was kind of a wushu hater because when you do traditional martial arts, then you almost by default have to kind of shit on wushu, all right? <laughs> because, oh, that's not the real Kung Fu, it's the stuff that was developed by the mainland Chinese communist government, blah, 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 right? Okay, all right. I was of that opinion for a very, very long time. Um, but I'm not anymore. Because um, even though traditional wushu is mostly flashy, mostly for fun, mostly for performance, um, it's still a very difficult skill to learn and master. I mean, look at these wushu athletes performing these forms, and you can say, yeah, I would never do a 720 jump kick to someone in a real fight. Yeah, but go do a 720 jump kick. I want to see it. Oh, you can't do it. Yeah, well, that wushu guy can, and that's pretty freaking amazing. Yeah. Okay? So your talking point is, oh, well, this is useless in fighting, but uh, yeah, but I'm sure the wushu guy also kind of knows that, but he can still do a bunch of stuff you can't. Yeah. So um, as I've gotten older, I've way chilled out my stance on hate and wushu. When I see a good wushu performance, I'm like, wow, those guys are tremendous athletes. Um, it's okay to look at a wushu athlete and go, wow, that is tremendous skill. And that not have to offend your personal sensibilities about what real fighting is. Yeah. You can be a real fighter and a real Chinese martial artist 
and still compliment wushu, and it doesn't make you less manly. All right? Mm -hmm. I know this, all right? Because I compliment wushu all the time, and I'm just as manly as before. Well, you keep telling yourself uh, that. <laughs> I keep telling myself that, right? Um, so actually, I've chilled out on that. Also, because I have good friends who do wushu. I mean, Wu Woman Svitlana, she's a wushu practitioner, yeah, and like she's, she's absolutely a martial artist, right? Yep. Um, so I get it. There's always been this thing between traditional Chinese martial artists and the wushu guys and what's real and what's real kung fu and the wushu guys don't hold their fist right and don't hold the sword right because they're not really using it as if scores of kung fu people are really using their swords okay all right um you know as if scores of kung fu people are really using their fists so all like i mean again it's like just hypothetical versus hypothetical right so it's like i i, I kind of hear those things and then after a while i go like yeah well i mean for the most part very traditional real kung fu styles are doing as much fighting as the wushu guys are too so mm -hmm. they need to kind of shut up with that stuff um and i'm not saying that's the case here with this question i'm just saying like in general i get the hate i was part of that and as i get older i'm way more accepting because i just look at those guys as really high level athletes yeah and it's okay to praise high level athletes and you're not offending your own personal sensibilities and knowledge of martial arts by doing so all yeah. right so i don't have that issue anymore and I get it like the diaspora of Chinese out there, it was usually easier to find traditional martial arts, but now you got this kind of, now you have wushu schools popping up, especially in Chinese areas. And well, here's my thing. If a mom brings their kid to a wushu school and brings their kid to a traditional Chinese martial arts school and their kid wants to do wushu, that's not Wushu's fault you lost the student. That's yeah. your fault, okay? And the subtle argument usually underlying this whole traditional martial arts versus Wushu is look at these young kids nowadays, they're learning Wushu and they're learning how to use all this fancy stuff and they're not learning real practical Chinese martial arts. Yeah, well, how come the real practical Chinese martial arts are not attracting these kids to do it? But Wushu is. Yeah. Because clearly the wushu training, by giving them massive flexibility, uh, acrobatic ability, which they can maybe use later to go into films. Yep. Because they have that background, all right? The f when, uh, and, and it's the same problem, it's a zero sum mentality lots of Chinese and traditional martial art guys have. If they don't have students, it's the other school's fault somehow. Yeah. No, homie, if you don't have students, it's your fault. Yep. If no one wants to join your school, it's not because you're so damn traditional and so damn real, I, they can't handle the realness, yeah. all right? It's like uh, Dave Chappelle, when, go, when, when keeping it real goes wrong, all right? <laughs> Yo, my Kung Fu school is just keeping it so real. No one wants to join it, okay? All right, then that's not the Wushu guy's fault, okay? Yeah. If people come to your school and they see that it has value and they join, then you really gain a student. And if they feel that they can get that value elsewhere, well, I mean, it's also a marketplace of ideas. For some people, wushu is a better choice, all right? But um, if Chinese, real Chinese Kung Fu has a problem with wushu guys taking students from them, then the real traditional Kung Fu guys need to stop blaming the wushu guys and they need to up their game. And that's all I gotta say about that.
All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Kung Fu Genius. As always, don't forget to subscribe to the Kung Fu Genius. Hit that bell for notifications. Like this episode. And if you have any questions you want me to answer on a future episode of the KFG podcast, go ahead and write them in the comments below. And as always, I'll see you guys next time. Word is I'm a Kung Fu genius. Technique speaks for me, not lineage. Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one. Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Seekung. And I produce masters. You surpassed us. Your Kung Fu stiffer than corpse and caskets. City Wing Chung is the house I built. Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt. Alex Richter, always the victor. Sounds good. He had a, a two questions, Yes, right? that's the right. La the first one was about the weapons, which I talked about. and Yeah, uh, that was a good question, actually, talking about like knives. Ford Fiestas. How we, yeah, Ford Fiestas. That's right. And the reason why that topic is so fresh is because we might have recorded that episode earlier today, but I digest. Let's go. What you got for <laughs> I me? I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Seagull. Uh, well, well, we did change our shirt, so it makes it seem like <laughs> makes it seem like it's a totally different day than okay, the last cool. episode. It's a totally different day in my mind. <laughs> Let's get to it. <laughs> All right, good work, man. Thank you. So much better than Dre. One take. God, I feel so much better now. It's difficult dealing with him. Oh yeah, that yeah. guy. He's Seriously. in his weird hanging out with Ye West phase right now. Yeah, I know. And just, just you know, people just feel really uncomfortable about it. It is uncomfortable. He it was is. on that interview with him. He was also wearing a black mask like Kanye. Yeah, I, I think he was. He was. We can't. Shooting. We can't stand behind that. Yeah, we we cannot stand behind it. We can't stand with it. I, you know what? I think he, you know, got called a few years ago. You know, that he was headed that way. He was heading Some that way. Some of the comments. It was just a matter saying, of time. Yeah, and I think I think he. It's finally, a damn shame what happened to Dre. It's it's really. I hope nobody forgets about him. Because sometimes motherfuckers act like they forgot about Dre.